Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Jay Coburn. This is Darts and Letters. We've just become a part of New Books Network. Our first episode on the network was yesterday, actually, in case you want to check that out too. And as we're new, you probably want to know a bit about us. We make a show about the politics of ideas, but we do it from a kind of populist perspective. Until September, we'll be catching you up on our previous episodes, and this is one where we really leaned into the populist stuff. We explored the politics of pro-wrestling. Now, I'm not a wrestling fan, and I still loved this episode. Gordon, the host and editor, is a fan, but I'm not. However, I learned so much from this, and I was really surprised by the places that progressive politics do appear in pro-wrestling. It's really its own kind of epic literature, with power struggles and underdogs and villains. So this episode really fits with this week's theme. We're doing a different theme each week, with episodes from our catalogue, until we launch Season 2 on September 18th. This week, the theme is Ideas in Strange Places. Stay tuned for science fiction and prison intellectuals later in the week. This episode, though, it's just a really great listen. If you're not a wrestling fan, you're going to find a lot of it really surprising and funny and insightful. If you are a wrestling fan, then it might just help you see pro wrestling in a different way. Vince McMahon has also been in the news recently for paying millions of dollars in hush money to suppress allegations of sexual misconduct, according to the Wall Street Journal. We made this episode way before those stories came out, but there's a bit of a biography of Vince in this episode too, which you might find informative. All right, here's the show. Make your way to the ring, Gordon. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show for people who love ideas but hate snob culture. We sure live up to that tagline today because we are talking about the least snobbish thing around. Pro wrestling. WrestleMania 37 has just come and gone, and it got me thinking. I just need to come out and say it. I have to let you in on my dirty little secret. I am a wrestling fan. It's not something I'm always ready to share. Because, let's be honest, wrestling is thought of as totally trashy. It is not particularly progressive, and it's certainly not woke. But it is just so much fun. I think of wrestling as part modern dance and part redneck soap opera. And I say all that totally lovingly. Because there's just so much to love here. The amazing athleticism, the high-flying moves, those intense, unpredictable matches, the music, the crazy pyro, and the outlandish storylines. Plus, once you really get into it, you start to see the meta storylines and the storylines between the storylines. Like, who's beefing with who? Who's on the good side of management? Who's on the bad side? Who's the next babyface? And when are they going to turn heel? If you think wrestling is fake, you're just not getting it. Because wrestling is not fake. Yes, it is predetermined. Everybody knows that. But it's also partly improvised. Certainly, the injuries aren't fake. But on a more abstract level, 
Wrestling is really this play between truth and fiction. Paging underemployed humanities grads, this is where you're paid to shine. Because if you've read Judith Butler, you know exactly what I'm going to talk about, performativity. Wrestling is, quote, performative. Or maybe you've read Irving Goffman or Pierre Bourdieu. You'll know what I mean. Wrestling is a sort of theatrical presentation of the self. It's about a particular social context and figuring out what role you play in it. Wrestling toys with all these ideas in such profound ways. Because wrestlers aren't just athletes, they're characters. And they wear masks. Those masks are figurative and sometimes literal. But the point is, they reveal deeper truths. I mean, in pro wrestling, the mean boss plays the mean boss. The company man is indeed the company man, and the anti-authority rebel plays the anti-authority rebel. Aren't we all a little bit like that? We're a son or daughter, a father or mother, a boss or an employee, a student or a scholar. Whatever our role, we didn't choose them. Or maybe we did. But regardless, we have to play them whether we like them or not. Or maybe we find a way to refuse, subvert, like that wrestler that totally upends their own identity. The macho tough guy playing the gender-bending wrestler. Wrestlers wear masks, and so do we. And those masks say a lot about us. Or maybe I'm getting too cute here. Maybe they actually just say a lot more about power. Maybe the mask you wear is just the mask your boss told you to wear, like Vince McMahon tells his wrestlers. But I don't need to go all postmodern on you. You know that I'm not really that guy. At the end of the day, there are very practical, down-to-earth reasons why wrestling matters. For one, it is an enormously popular industry that just makes a boatload of money. But even more importantly than that, it is a kind of Rosetta Stone for our politics. I think you can learn a lot more about politics by watching pro wrestling than reading most poli-sci journals. It just makes a lot of things make sense. Like, don't forget, Donald Trump was literally in the WWE Hall of Fame before he was president. And do you remember back then all those think pieces about how wrestling explains Trumpism? What did you think about them? How did they make you feel? It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you felt about those takes. For the record, they were right. But that's old news. Here's what's current. The next wrestling president, Gordon says, If you smell what the rock is cooking. The rock says, The rock. The rock. He was my favorite of all time. He'd slam his opponents right down to rock bottom. And when they were there in the middle of the ring, he'd run rope to rope and deliver the people's elbow. Rocky was the people's champ. And one day, he might just be the people's president. I am not shitting you. 
According to a new poll just out this week, 46% of Americans would support him running. And frankly, I think he'd win. I'm not sure for which party. I'm not sure it matters. He could take either or both of them on. Because who else they got? Josh Hawley? Kamala Harris? Come on. Imagine that on a debate stage. Rocky would introduce himself to the crowd. Finally, the Rock has come back to Washington, D.C. Then he'd stare down his feeble opponents. The Rock says, who are you too, Rudy Pooh? He'd spend the next few minutes viciously insulting them. Let The Rock remind you of something. You ain't nothing. You're a hundred pounds of nothing. Five feet nothing. Oh, excuse the rock one second. Excuse the rock. His cell phone's going off. Oh, yeah. Cacao, uh, hello. Hey, it's nothing. He says he knows you. You're nothing. At some point, the moderator might just cut him off. Well, mankind talking about whoa, whoa, the... Whoa, 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 whoa. The rock is not done. If you knew your role and shut your mouth and listen, listen, shh, because they are chanting the rock's name. Really, who could beat that? None of these jabronis would stand a chance. I'm not saying it's a good thing. For the record, it's not. But unfortunately, politics is spectacle. And when we're talking spectacle, the most spectacular performer, well, he always wins the belt. Or maybe the White House. Today on Darts and Letters, coming out of WrestleMania, we bring you WrestleBrainia. It is a brilliant lineup of scholars, wrestlers, and superfans, and we are talking the politics of pro wrestling. Brian Jansen is a scholar of wrestling labor and wrestling precarity. Dr. Jansen sees himself in those pro wrestlers. And so for me, the value in studying professional wrestling is as this sort of lens or, or reflection or metaphor for trends that we're seeing more broadly. This rise toward an orientation where we see ourselves not as laboring, but as accumulating a kind of like human capital. The industry is totally irredeemable. It is misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, ugly, right? Not so fast. I speak to the Spider Baby, and he tells me the inspiring story of becoming the first openly gay wrestler. I went back to the locker room afterwards, and everyone in that locker room stood up on their feet and gave me a big, big round of applause. And that was them telling me we're, we're cool with it. We're glad you're doing it. Wrestling is definitely populist, but it doesn't have to be right-wing populism. Heather Levy is an anthropologist who trained in Lucha Libre, and she tells me about gender-bending queer politics and the progressive potential of pro wrestling. You have the central stereotype of, like, what's wrong with queer men is that they can't defend themselves. They won't defend their boundaries, and so... Because of that, their word is no good. And here you have this performance in which they're not only defending their boundaries, they're like kind of unmanning the other wrestlers. But first. Yeah. No chance. No chance 
we try to figure out who is Vince McMahon. He's the man behind the curtain and in the center of the ring. Vince is the chairman of the WWE, and he might just be the worst boss ever. Screw you! You're fired! Or does he just play that on TV? All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters. If you like what you hear and you want to support us, why don't you subscribe? You can do that wherever you find your podcasts, or you can find us at dartsandletters.ca. Okay, back to the show. Steve and Larson host the excellent and daily podcast, Going In Raw. It is a professional wrestling podcast that is hilarious and thoughtful. I liken Vince McMahon to the character of Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The guy through phase one and probably phase two or whatever it was, would be in the background kind of controlling everything. And that's how integral Vince McMahon is to professional wrestling, is that he decides basically everything traditionally anyways for the first you know the the, the, the from the 70s 80s 90s Vince McMahon has been the guy snatching up the territories if he wants what you have he will get it and it is up to you as to whether or not you want to get paid you want to comply you want to or you want to be destroyed he has his hands in every aspect of professional wrestling from the time he basically got into the business, certainly from the early 80s when he started uh, his national takeover of the industry. Um, And that's when things get really interesting back then in 84 or so, when he really started going hard on, um, hey, uh, what was a gentleman's agreement before with, uh, with his father and all the various territory owners was no longer on the table with him when he took over. It was, hey, I know I can establish my brand as the national brand, as the name in pro wrestling. I'm going to do that, and I kind of don't care how I go about doing that. There's a seemingly interesting dichotomy with Vince McMahon that you hear repeatedly through anecdotes and stories about him where he can be this very genuine, warm human being, and then he can be the, the most callous businessman. And it, there's a, a, a series or a documentary about uh, The Undertaker, the, the last ride that was uh, came out last year. And you see the relationship between the two of them, and they're obviously very close. I mean, there, there's footage of them backstage, you know, like goofing off, having fun. And you hear stories about him being a very warm and outgoing person. And then you hear some of the wild, there's, you know, some of them are unsubstantiated. You don't know how true they are. Stories about him, you're like, wow. It's hard to wrap your mind around the idea that this could be the same individual. I don't think anybody has been documented both willingly and unwillingly as much as Vince McMahon has to be in such a crazy, crazy form of entertainment to put yourself on camera reveling as a character that reflects some real life aspect of you. The Mr. McMahon character that became literally the biggest heel in the in the history of professional wrestling while at the same time being the guy who's signing the checks, hiring people, being the actual boss, and how much that line really did seem to get blurred. Well, let's start where he becomes a character, where he's no longer just the background. Let me see if I can do this. I think this is going to work. 
Oh, you're kidding me. Michaels, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharpshooter? Yes, he is! Are you kidding me? One of the most infamous matches in WWE history. For people that don't know, what exactly happens at the end of the Montreal Screwjob? Oh, wow. Larson, what's the what's the phrase you have for this? Uh, the phrase I came up with is contract negotiations gone wrong in the ring. <laughs> so leading up to this, uh, Bret Hart had a deal with uh, the WWE. And for a variety of reasons, Vince McMahon decided that he didn't want to honor the contract. So uh, they, they set an end point for the deal. And at the time, Bret was champion. And part of the arrangement they made... Uh, to let Brett out of the deal was that he would get creative control for the last, I think it was 60 days of his deal or something like that. And which means he would get to decide how he dropped the belt, lost the belt. Vince decided that at Survivor Series 97, he wanted that belt off Bret Hart. Even though he had time on his deal, even though Eric Bischoff, who was running WCW at the time where Brett uh, went afterwards, said, we will give you more time to drop the belt. You know, you can come in and you don't have that kind of looming over you. So the story essentially was Vince and others devised a plan where Shawn Michaels would put Bret Hart in his own finisher, the sharpshooter, and Bret thinks he's going to reverse it and escape. However, Earl Hebner, the referee in the match, calls for the bell, ending the match, declaring Shawn Michaels the winner. Bret, completely unaware. And what you see here is one of the few times uh, in pro wrestling where we see uh, an honest-to-goodness shoot where this was not planned, and you see Bret Hart uh, essentially lose his mind, spit in Vince McMahon's face. That's nasty. It has a tantrum ringside, starts destroying monitors, goes backstage, Vince walks into his locker room. Uh, There's a documentary uh, about Bret Hart around this time called Wrestling with Shadows. That's really good. It, covers it was a lot shocking of the, that they that the amount of access that these documentarians had in Bret Hart's personal life and backstage access in the WWF at the time of this happening. And you see all this play out and then it goes from here, it goes backstage and you see the, you know, all the, all the sort of supporting players waiting in the hallway for Vince and Bret to confront each other in the locker room. And of course you just sort of hear some stuff. The cameras leave before things happen, but yeah. evidently what happened was Bret Hart said, Vince, you know, I'm going to go take a shower. If you're back, when I come back, you're going to have problems. Vince stayed there. He uh, apparently uh, ate uh, a punch to the eye. The camera captures Vince leaving with a, a shock. You know, he looked like he's just been punched in the eye. <laughs> he's stumbling around. And the whole thing is just so awkward and weird. But yeah, it was one of the very, very few moments where, you know, that peak behind the curtain became very public in the main event of a major match. Yeah, especially WWE, especially of late. Everything, everything is so micromanaged by Vince that to see something like this, which obviously was not micromanaged, happen is pretty shocking. Is it the very next day I have here also this sort of infamous uh, oh, interview? I'm guessing this is Brett Screwed Brett. It is Brett Screwed Brett. And, <laughs> and he does seem to have a black eye with uh, mm-hmm. a lot of makeup over top of yeah, it. Yeah, that would be real. Years ago at the Survivor Series, did you or did you not screw Bret Hart? Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. 
I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. Yeah, so uh, obviously there were a lot of questions the next day. The pro wrestling fandom was probably like, uh, what, what did we just see? And so McMahon, for the pretty much the first time, although I think there was some moment before this when he was sort of teasing a heel character. But at this point, it was basically difficult for him not to just run with it. And he goes on with this interview with Jim Ross here. And he says, uh, you know, I didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. And as far as screwing Brett Hart. <laughs> and yeah, there's this black guy right there. There's a time-honored tradition in the wrestling business. That when someone is leaving, they show the right amount of respect to the WWF superstars, in this case, who helped make you that superstar. You show the proper respect to the and, uh, and And he ran with it. And, you know, when you look back on the Monday Night Wars and you can say, well, in this instance anyways, uh, the WWF got Mr. McMahon out of this Montreal screw job, and WCW got a really dejected Bret Hart who really never lived up to his days in the WWF when he went over to WCW. He, there were some bright spots there, but the creative, the, the lack of vision in WCW really did Bret Hart a disservice over there. Well, I think also, too, the Montreal Screwjob really took a lot of It seemed to take Brett's an emotional toll on passion well. yeah. for pro wrestling out of him, too. Yeah. So after this moment, it seems like Vince is officially like the heel, right? And and my my real entree into wrestling, my favorite wrestler, the first one I saw live or on the title card of the of the first pro wrestling event I went to was Austin. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about this moment and what it says about Vince. It's real simple. The easy way is to learn to be flexible, to learn to adapt, Mr. Austin. And if you'd bear with me for just a moment, please. Mr. Austin, adaptation so this is, is a key WrestleMania, I think. Oh, yeah, this was after Mania. Yeah. This was after Mania, and Vince asks Austin to sort of toe the company line. Doing it my way anyhow, you'll be forced into doing it my way, so that's the hard way. And we don't even need to discuss that. This is the episode, I think, at the end that Austin was wearing the suit and comes out and, and stuns Austin like and says, said, I'm not going to be your, your corporate champion, essentially, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. and then, and then Vince came, went down the path of looking for that corporate champion, and exactly. you, you had some, some shenanigans with Mankind, and then he found his corporate champion in The Rock, and another massive, massive star was born, and now he's the biggest Hollywood star of all time, and he's probably going to be president. Yeah, no kidding. And Austin's but. answer, of course, to this is the, uh, we shall see. Probably going to be middle finger or a stunner, or both. <laughs> <laughs> There's the stunner. And the worst, Vince McMahon really was the the worst. And there's the middle fingers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they really did. It was the perfect storm of you had this stone-cold character, an anti-authority guy, uh, an anti-hero, who really did. I mean, dude, I was the same way. Like, I was into WCW because of the NWO, and then as soon as we caught wind of this Austin guy, it was like, no, man, this guy is where it's at. He is our proxy. You know, who doesn't want to stun their boss? Who doesn't want to, uh, you know, drink beer in the middle of a ring? He's what we all are deep down if we're all working. You know, I mean, none of us are working wrestling jobs, but for some reason we saw him as a blue collar worker. It was the perfect story. It was absolutely brilliant. 
and man, they 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 rolled with it, and the old uh, authority versus wrestler storyline was just completely done year after year after year through a variety of characters. It was almost always, you know, the McMahons in some way, shape, or form, whether it was Stephanie, Shane, Vince, Linda, Triple H, uh, who married into the family. You know, they'd always try to be keeping uh, their thumbs on top of uh, the, the faces in the WWE. Do you have a favorite episode in the Austin McMahon storyline? For me, it was when he visited Vince in the hospital. When he hit Vince with that bedpan over the top of his head, uh, yeah, you've got it queued up right here. <laughs> you got it queued up for sure. Looks just fine to me. How about you, doctor? Oh, I'll take it from here, nurse. No, 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 It's great, yeah. Austin, the nurse with the scrubs on. Look at him. <laughs> he rushes him, gives him some really terrible looking punches. He's got the cast, too, and he hits him in the cast. There you go. There he goes. Punching his, his cast. I mean, this is nothing but fun. You can tell both guys. There's there's a bedpan right there. That made the loudest noise, and Vince has his underwear on. He probably thought this is the funniest thing in the world. Uh, because uh, according to numerous anecdotes and stories, Vince has the most juvenile sense of humor as well. Sometimes that plays very off yeah. the Yeah, it's uh, this is absolutely great stuff right here. With the bedpan joke, it kind of speaks to Vince's real-life kind of juvenile humor. And I pulled up a thread here from Alan Cheapshot that looks at, just has so many stories of him. Just to pick one, Vince thinks that throwing slash pushing someone into a swimming pool while fully clothed is the funniest thing on planet Earth. <laughs> One time he got drunk and urinated on Ric Flair's hotel bed. There are so many more, but how true are these stories? Who is Vince really? There's been some that have been substantiated. So I, if a number of years ago, I, I think it was Paul Heyman that first told this story about how Vince doesn't like sneezing. He hates sneezing because he, he can't control it. And subsequently, I believe Stephanie, his daughter, has confirmed this on multiple occasions. And then she just did so pretty recently. And in, in the course of confirming that, she also said that Vince doesn't like people nodding at meetings <laughs> because he thinks it influences the room. And he thinks everybody should think for themselves and form their own opinions on things. Probably my favorite of the, the Vince stories that seem to be, you know, somewhat verified is at TV tapings. He'll have his office set up. And, you know, he'll be talking creative and, 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 and wrestlers will wait out in front of his office to pitch ideas or get the script changed or something like that. And so uh, Chris Jericho, when he had Brody Lee on, on his episode, was talking to him about that process and told a story. I think he was in a feud with Shawn Michaels at the time. And he goes into Vince's office and Vince is eating. And he's pitching this idea. And he's talking for minutes, minutes, minutes. And he finishes and Vince is quiet and just says, bad cow. And Jericho says, what? Bad cow. It's a tough steak. So basically, if you go in there and try to pitch to Vince while he's eating, he won't hear a word. <laughs> so wrestlers, they would try to find out if he had eaten before going in and trying to pitch ideas to him. Like I said, he just, you, hear, you hear these stories about him, and it's, 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 it's hard to think that in some respects that this many facets... Yeah of a human being could exist in one 
person, you know? So here's one that is completely substantiated because it comes to you from Bruce Pritchard, who's currently Vince's right-hand man. He's the head of creative, basically the head of creative at, at WWE. And it, uh, he has a really fantastic podcast called Something to Wrestle With. And he talks about a time when uh, Vince crapped his pants and went on live TV and then the aftermath of that. And this is, you know, he, he's telling this story. This guy is an employee of the WWE. And it, here, this is the quote. He says, well, he sharted. He was going to fart and he crapped. He says, and he walked up the stairs to the gorilla position, which was right in front of the curtain before you go out. And he says, Bruce, come here, pal. And I said, yeah. And he lifted up his jacket and he says, do you see anything? And I said, yeah, you shit your pants. <laughs> God damn it. How about now? And he let his jacket down and I couldn't see it. And he said, do you think they'll be able to tell? And I said, I think if you keep your jacket on, you'll be all right, buddy. He says, this was the last thing of the night right before he went out. No, he went out, came back, took them off, and I guess cleaned up. <laughs> And then Triple H chased Jerry Briscoe around with the shitty underwear, <laughs> and he put on some warm-up pants. So I do think that the the crazier stories about this juvenile humor is just something that I think for a spell, maybe less so now, permeated, you know, like they say, everything starts at the top. Mm -hmm. And so I think that kind of stuff was, you know, prevalent in the WWF backstage. I think that he he likes that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We've heard that he loves he just absolutely loves snow cones. I think there was like axe throwing it at his birthday or Triple, Triple, it was Triple H's, H's birthday. birthday yeah. His fiftieth birthday. X Pac talked about that. There's an axe throwing station at Jeez. one of the 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 events at Triple H's fiftieth birthday, and I guess Vince just loved it. So he's kind of like a twelve year old that just sort of never grew up. Like there are aspects of him that you know just seem like a stunted you know pre adolescent. He's like a, a small tyrant, a petty little tyrant, mm -hmm. but he's uh, managing a multi billion dollar business. It's, it's, yeah. that is not the makings of a, of a good situation. But, you know, they score billion dollar deal after billion dollar deal. It's, it's crazy because as much as, as you know, that they have suffered a, a lot in their ratings over the past couple of years, but somehow, some way the product that they've created, the brand name that he has spearheaded just continues. You know, they, they recently signed about two years ago or so, I think we're in the second year of the deal a five-year multi-billion dollar deal with the USA or with the NBC Universal and Fox to air on SmackDown. They just inked another probably billion dollar deal to have their WWE Network content and pay-per-views ported over to the Peacock streaming service. And so, you know, I, I don't know how that's all going to play out with, you know, what seems to be their audience, you know, slowly fading away. I don't know what the floor of that is, what the value of live of that live product is going to continue to be. Every time people seem to count them out or say, oh, they're not what they used to be, they score another massive deal. They are just cashing in right now. And I don't know. <laughs> you can doubt the man and, and his business practices, perhaps, but they seem to be playing out pretty well for him. You know, there are bad bosses out there like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. They don't want to be thought of as evil, but you can maybe make a case for it. Whereas Vince, that's the point. He wants you to hate him. And that'd be one thing if he was just a character, but he is also the actual boss. Why do you think he's willing to do that? I don't know if he sees it that way. Yeah, I mean, if remember he, had, he did an interview with uh, Bob Costas years ago at the height of the attitude era 
And, uh, you know, Costas was hitting some pretty hard-hitting questions. And uh, it was like Vince did not even try to come up with any sort of diplomatic way. You know, it wasn't like he had a PR person kind of brief him and prepare him for anything. He got, at first, defensive and then aggressive, you know, in, in an effort to protect his business. You know, for years, the wrestling business was all about protecting itself, and protecting the illusion that what we saw in the professional wrestling ring was real. And some performers would carry that outside of the ring, outside the arena. They wouldn't travel together. They wouldn't be seen in public together because they were in a storyline together. And I think for Vince, part of the aspect of why he might get aggressive in situations like this, because it's like, hey, you're trying to hurt and expose my business. I need to protect it. Now, these days, we all know the matches are choreographed. We all know these are performers in storylines. But I wonder if part of it is there's an aspect of that that's still there for Vince where he feels like I need to protect this business. I need to protect my business. And, you know, if, if, if it means ruffling some feathers, so be it. I have a couple weirder ones that I just, these were a little bit uh, like ones that I missed that I didn't really understand. Like when he, he introduces a new religion or something and God shows up in the ring. Can you guys <laughs> explain how, what, what was going on there? Oh. So this was a feud with Shawn Michaels, yes. who was an open, openly born-again Christian. And, you know, this is one of those things where you, you, you never know exactly what's going on in his head, which led him to believe that this would be a smart or interesting creative move beyond... Like, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Maybe he was just aiming to be so crazy that people would tune in and see what the hell he's doing. I mean, obviously the idea is he's got a, his character has a massive ego and he can beat up God and show Shawn Michaels that, Hey, I'm bigger than the thing that you, you know, you worship from the kingdom of heaven. Please welcome God. The crowd reaction to this was probably a bit more tepid than he thought he was he was gonna get. And on top of that, you know, I'm sure the outrage he might have been trying to court, uh, what probably just was 20 years too late because I'm sure if he had run this angle in the 80s or even maybe in the 90s, it might have ruffled mm -hmm. a couple more feathers in in the in the popular culture. It was just silly. Why did he do this to Jim Ross? When Jim Ross had an operation, Vince set up this strange, elaborate sketch where he was the surgeon pulling things out of JR's ass. <laughs> That's probably the juvenile humor, I would guess. He probably thought that was funny. All right, JR. Time for your uh, colon surgery, and we're going to get to that blockage. There's no doubt about that. God, I don't even remember watching this. I mean, All he's right, got... Okay. Yeah, he's got he's got the blonde nurse there. Yeah. He uses it's barbecue all, sauce as lube. It's yeah. Well, Jim Ross was selling barbecue sauce at the time, so that makes some amount of sense. He's got a jackhammer. This is the stunted adolescence I'm talking about here. How this is one of those things that he thought was funny. It's completely juvenile. It's really not that funny unless you really check your brain at the door. <laughs> There's some amount of humor in knowing that he thinks it's funny. Yes. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm not laughing at the humor. I'm laughing at this old man 
who is trying to be cutting edge, there's some weird ego thing happening as well. And nobody probably said no to this. And they're just like, yeah, okay, well, I guess that's just what it is. It's what he wants to do. So we have to do it best that we can. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you guys feel about liking or hating? Like, what is the relationship with Vince, who is such an interesting performer and like so many of these bits are just just gold, but he is a bad person, it seems to me, both on screen and off in a lot of ways. So how do you feel about your relationship to him? So it, it takes a lot of compartmentalization, <laughs> I would say. You can appreciate his contributions to the business because they are vast. You can uh, uh, appreciate his role as Mr. McMahon, which again, one of, one of if not the, the greatest heels in pro wrestling history, while at the same time having reservations about how he has treated his talent. Some of the business arrangements that he has made, which are questionable. We have a conversation, Steve and I do, whenever something like this comes up where, you know, it, whether it's like a really bad segment, a bad episode of Raw, a bad business deal, there's some bad bit of news about WWE. And it's like, okay, we could have a measure of anger and resentment against WWE, which we do at times. But when it comes down to it, the performers that wrestle in WWE, especially nowadays, are all incredibly talented. These performers, I feel like, are really great. You know, and and I will put my support for them first and foremost. And yeah, I strongly disagree with a lot of stuff Vince has done and does today. And yeah, sometimes I feel bad giving them my money. But at the end of the day, you got to hope, all right, well, in doing so, you're helping these performers live out their dreams, make a good living for themselves, support their family. And that's just kind of the deal I've had to make in my head to kind of not feel awful about watching WB's programming. That was Stephen Larson. If you want smart and funny wrestling conversations posted fresh daily, they are your place to go. Subscribe to Going In Raw, a pro wrestling podcast. They've also got a pretty great YouTube channel. And a special bonus for Darts and Letters patrons this week. My full conversation with Stephen Larson is available now to subscribers. We talked for almost an hour and we covered many more hilarious moments from the on- and off-screen career of Mr. Vince McMahon. Subscribe today at patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Brian Jansen is lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Maine. He writes on pro wrestling and labor. And he tells me that's a bit unusual. Most of the wrestling scholarship has looked at wrestling as performance, not as actual work. My read is that we've been hesitant to think about wrestling as work, as labor, in part because wrestling does a lot to disguise that fact. It is very much about the performance. It is very much about the character. I think the moment you recognize that there's work and labor involved, you're dangerously close to 
treating this almost as if it is genuine competitive sport. And if you do that, you're going to get laughed out of the room. One thing I learned reading your work is that a lot of the labor in terms of constructing the characters, coming up with the costumes and the makeup, especially in the early days of one's wrestling career, that's all on the wrestler? That's like creative labor that the wrestler is taking on? Is that right? That is generally the case. You have a couple of sort of famous examples where in the case of WWE, Vince McMahon has created a character, assigned it to a person, and that character has has taken off. But increasingly, professional wrestlers are sort of responsible for creating something that works for themselves. And that does include the training. It does include the, the costuming, the makeup. Professional wrestling contracts, at least at the WWE level, generally seem pretty you know, well-paid. You're making decent money, at least according to some of the contracts that we, we see we have access to. But what that tends to leave out is that wrestlers are responsible for paying for their own health insurance in the U.S., for example. They're responsible for their own travel, so traveling between venues. Uh, they're responsible for their own costuming. They're responsible for their own makeup, all of those things, right? So what seems at a glance like, you know, a really kind of remunerative industry, you're not actually necessarily getting a whole lot out of that uh, because of how much costs are offloaded or downloaded onto you, the performer. You know, if you're in the what's called the developmental territory of WWE, you might be making, say, sixty or $70,000 a year and then subtracting all of those things that you yourself are responsible for, right? The gym training, the, the costuming. That's at the elite level of professional wrestling. If you're a person just getting started, you're on, you know, what's called the independent circuit. You might be making 20 bucks uh, for a show. You might be making 50 bucks. You might not make anything at all, right? It's dependent on, on the gate. So all of those kind of downloaded costs, like take, for instance, traveling. I mean, what, there's like two, three shows a week all across the United States. I mean, that's a lot of airline tickets, it's funny. I, I I would have never thought that because you know you 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 try and think about like an athlete. The athlete doesn't pay for you know the Toronto Raptors plane. He need not charter it. It is provided for them. Yeah. So uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, the uh, WWE was was putting on about I think four or five live shows per week. They're separated out into kind of individual tours. Uh, as far as we know, WWE contracts speculate that they'll get you to the first show of a tour. And they'll deliver you home from the final show of a tour. But how you get from, you know, Corpus Christi, Texas to Dallas, Texas, that's on you. Wow. And what about the healthcare? WWE performers are, are independent contractors in the United States. Uh, and one of the consequences of being an independent contractor is that health insurance, healthcare is, is your own responsibility as a performer. If a, a move is botched or you hurt yourself, you know, during a match, that's covered by WWE. They do have addiction treatment resources that they make available to past and present performers. But healthcare as a sort of general category is up to you as the performer. So you're buying sort of private out-of-pocket health insurance. I would imagine, I mean, it's good, I guess, that those ring injuries are covered, but I imagine a lot of the injuries might happen in training or, or happen, um, may not even get noticed in ring and, and then 
kind of linger. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. Uh, when we think about sort of injury to professional wrestlers, we tend to think about, you know, the dramatic, it's called a botch in the industry, that if you fail a, a move in ring, it's, it's called a botch. So, you know, I, I didn't take you up correctly for this move and I dropped you on your head and broke your neck, which has happened with surprising frequency. But, you know, what we don't think of is the sort of just wear and tear to the human body um, required in training in order to be able to do all of that stuff in the ring. There's a great example of uh, a particular wrestler by the name of Diamond Dallas Page who describes, uh, I think, breaking vertebrae during a match. And he says, you know, my opponent took me up for this move. We performed it correctly. It was the same move that I've, you know, taken and given hundreds of times over my career. I landed perfectly. And it was just that was the time that the vertebrae just broke. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it was probably the consequence of doing the exact same thing 200, 300, 400, 500 times eventually you're just going to wear out. What's the average um, lifespan? Well, not, I know a lot of wrestlers do uh, die young, which is, which is a separate question, but career length of a wrestler. They are either entirely too short or entirely too long. I mean, in terms of the lifespan of a wrestler, we can look at actuarial tables and we see that the lifespan of a professional wrestler is, is shockingly short on average. You can compare it to, say, a, a, an NFL player and professional wrestlers actually live shorter lives on average. Um, in terms of careers, at the high level, you'll see people who go in for five, 10 years, and then you'll see people who go in and really can't stop. They're still going well into their 60s or 70s. Uh, Ric Flair uh, was still actively wrestling up until, I believe, a couple of years ago. He started out in, what, the late 60s. So you have you know a 75-year-old man in the ring still wrestling. Terry Funk is another example, uh, has wrestled a retirement match, I think probably 12, 15 times in his life. And then within a year was back at it. How does the WWE get away with making these people who suffer so much uh, for this work, how do they get away with making them independent contractors and not just employees? So the terms of WWE contracts, those that we have accessible, stipulate in the contracts themselves that you are an independent contractor, you are not an employee of the WWE. And there's a line in there that actually says something to the effect of basically, um, and I'm paraphrasing it, but it sounds, it reads to me as a non-lawyer, like saying, you know, a lot of what we've already told you in this contract would seem to suggest that you're an employee, but you're not, you're an independent contractor. In terms of how that policy has actually held up, um, there's a couple factors there. So there is a stipulation in WWE contracts that labor disputes will be adjudicated in the state of Connecticut, where WWE is based. And there's a lot of speculation that courts in Connecticut are notoriously business friendly, that they are not going to ruffle feathers of WWE, which is a very large company, uh, is based in the state, brings in a lot of profit to the state. And in fact, there was a, I think 2008 or 2009, there was a case where somebody challenged independent contractor status and the court's ruling, as I understand it, was essentially you're independent contractors uh, because the contract that you sign says you're an independent contractor. That's part of it. Um, part of it is also, I think, the attitude of professional wrestlers themselves who view professional wrestling, I think, as this sort of secret club meritocratic institution. And if you're willing to suffer and if you're willing to, you know, 
put in all of this work, if you really truly are great, you are going to be the one who succeeds. There are these sort of attitudes and business practices that sort of just persist and die hard. What has happened when wrestlers have pushed back against that? I'm thinking particularly of like Jesse Ventura and calls for unionization in the industry. So the Jesse Ventura cases is pretty infamous. I mean, the caveat to all of this is that because professional wrestling is so notoriously a kind of carny industry, every story that you hear about professional wrestling does need to be taken with a grain of salt. But the story basically goes that in advance of, I believe it was WrestleMania 2, Jesse Ventura went backstage to all of the sort of assembled wrestlers of what was then WWF and said, we're in a strong position right now. If we refuse to go on, they can't put a show on. We have good bargaining power right now. We need to unionize. So this was a private conversation among wrestlers. The story basically goes that the next day, WWF CEO Vince McMahon approaches Ventura and says, don't you ever do that again. And for about 20 years, Ventura wondered how it got out that this conversation had happened. What came up eventually in a legal deposition is that Vince McMahon admitted that Hulk Hogan, then the sort of WWF superstar, told Vince that the boys were maybe thinking about unionizing. Ventura's career was sort of fairly short-lived after that. He actually took some bit roles on television in order to join the Screen Actors Guild and get health insurance that way, which is <laughs> kind of smart. So these are attempts that sort of get squashed really quickly. And there are also sort of more recent examples where professional wrestlers have said, yeah, like a union would be a good idea, um, but it's never folks in, in sort of power or with the, the ability to force um, the industry's hands that have made those calls. Who is it usually? Like junior wrestlers or former wrestlers or... The most sort of well-known example of this is uh, a guy by the name of Cody Rhodes, who's actually the son of a really famous wrestler, Dusty Rhodes. Cody Rhodes was in WWE for several years, had the perception that he was being sort of poorly used as a performer, asked for his release, was granted it, and on Twitter would sort of engage pretty openly and honestly with discussions about labor in the industry. And he basically said, you know, pro wrestling probably should have a union. But it's in part the attitude of the guys behind the scene that's, that means, you know, there's going to be resistance to it. The irony there is that he then went on to form his own pro wrestling company that does not have a union. <laughs> I was uh, trying to get a sense of like who the progressive wrestlers are. And I, I, I found, you know, a couple sort of here and there, but my general sense is that pro wrestlers tend to be pretty conservative. Like some of them become conservative politicians, even like Kane. Is that a fair characterization or how would you sort of characterize the politics of pro wrestlers? There's some evidence that the fans of pro wrestling are actually more progressive than we sort of reflexively think. So there are some sort of studies that have, have circulated and basically say that, you know, if you look at fans of all the major sports um, in North America, professional wrestling fans are actually on the kind of liberal, if not outright progressive side. The problem is that they tend to be low engagement relative to other sports fans. In terms of the performers themselves, I think even maybe 10, 15 years ago, the answer would have been that, you know, wrestlers are generally pretty conservative. You mentioned Kane, who's now the, the mayor of, a, I think, a small town in Tennessee. But there are uh, an increasing number of not just progressive, but kind of openly progressive professional wrestlers. So uh, somebody like Daniel Bryan, who wrestles in WWE uh, for quite a while, was vegan, 
advocated for progressive politics. He actually, I believe, once had an exchange with Naomi Klein on Twitter uh, <laughs> about agreeing to speak to one of her classes, I think. Sami Zayn, who's a Canadian-born um, of Syrian background, actually has as part of his character some of his his sort of progressive beliefs. Was interestingly like held off the card when the WWE performed in Saudi Arabia, in part because of his politics, but also because of his Syrian background. And so there are figures like those. I mean, what's interesting also is that quite often uh, a character's progressivism gets embedded into their performance, particularly as a heel. <laughs> So, right. so, uh, so as a villain. So, for example, uh, this was a couple of years ago. Now, Daniel Bryan adopted a sort of eco warrior gimmick. You know, like we're destroying the world. We need to do something about it. You would expect this to be, you know, a hero, a guy speaking truth. Um, but the character was played as a villain, which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. What exactly? Like, why does any of this really matter? What What does wrestling tell us about capitalism or? our wider culture? What, why study it further? You know, I think one of the reasons that uh, the study of professional wrestling has picked up a little bit, that there is now, you know, a, an actual organization dedicated to, to its study, is that academics increasingly see themselves in professional wrestling. Uh, when you think about, you know, the gigification of, of labor generally, that's really acutely felt in, in academia. You know, as I understand it, something like 70% of faculty in America are adjunct or on term-to-term contracts. You know, maybe speaking for myself more than others who study professional wrestling, you know, you see your own contingency reflected in what's happening on the screen. It's a very sort of vivid example of it, but it's it's a difference of degree, not a difference of, of kind. And so for me, the, the, the value in studying professional wrestling is as this sort of uh, lens or, or reflection or metaphor for trends that we're seeing more broadly. This rise toward an orientation where we see ourselves not as laboring, but as accumulating a kind of like human capital, right? That everything that we do needs to be done with the ultimate goal of sort of creating ourselves as this like investment vehicle, right? That I need to go to the right schools. I need to know the right people. And that if I do all of this right, then, you know, one day I will be a great success. And you see that played out so clearly and vividly, at least for me in professional wrestling. But what you also see is that that's ultimately a fiction because it's all cover for what is essentially labor and labor that is really harming people. Professional wrestlers die young. They are in tremendous pain near the ends of their careers. We know that there's a body of research that says that, you know, gigification in the economy more generally has similar consequences. Um, Suicide rates are higher for those who work in the gig economy. There are long-term health consequences for somebody whose entire job is to to hustle. That to me is, is why I find what happens in professional wrestling, particularly WWE, so compelling. That was Brian Jansen, lecturer in the Department of English at the University of Maine. You can follow him on Twitter at BDJansenPhD. And there's this one article of his that I read that I really recommend you check out. It's called, It's Still Real to Me, Contemporary Professional Wrestling, Neoliberalism, and the Problems of Performed Slash Real Violence. That's in the Canadian Review of American Studies, and it's also in our show notes. Terence Greeth is the world's first openly gay wrestler. He wrestles in the Midwest independent wrestling scene, and he goes by the name The Spider Baby. My match starts 
with my entrance music, which goes all the way back to 1981, a glam punk band called 45 Grave. The entrance music is evil and it kind of sets the tone as you might guess. So I go out there and I let the audience know that I'm there for a fight, basically. So much of what you see in wrestling these days within the industry, there's this um, kind of civil war we're having. On one side, there's the younger generation who seems really interested in just showing off their, their athletic abilities. And there's the older generation, my generation, which is more interested in presenting a character. And that's the real fun of wrestling. I've always thought is as a fan interacting with the wrestlers and vice versa, obviously. So it's very much a collaboration. I've heard it likened to a dance. The wrestlers are leading, but we're trying to get a reaction out of the audience. Sometimes we get the reaction we want. Sometimes we don't. Specifically, I'm going to come to the ring with my head covered. I always, I always, because I'm, I'm going to unveil myself for the audience. I bring a rose, a signature rose to the ring, a fresh actual rose, but I'll climb up to the top rope and I'll very theatrically lead myself over, stick the uh, rose right under my nose and then pull my head back and my mouth is full of water. And this in the post COVID age, I might rethink this part of it, but I spray water all over the place. And the front rows, even though I'm a bad guy, they're up reaching like, yeah, we want to get some of Spider Baby's mist. And I'm like, well, you don't know where my mouth has been. Kids. <laughs> so uh, then I get into the ring and I hold up my rose way, way up. And, and the audience explodes if they've been there before, because I will pick a side, one of the four sides of the ring where the audience is. And... Uh, whoever makes the most noise, I turn my back and then just like a bride, I will cover my eyes and then hoof it over, over my shoulder and into the audience. And it gets this huge reaction. People love it because it's a ritual. There's a real quality of reality to it in that I don't know who I'm going to give the rose to necessarily. I, I'm literally, although I've gotten very good <laughs> at uh, like, like baseball pitches where I can do like a sidearm. Yeah. The ceiling is really low <laughs> and I can do big loopy ones. I'm pretty good at picking targets right there. I'm, I'm setting this tone of, okay, audience, I am here and I'm with you and you're, you're here too. Now let's interact. That's part of the fun. The world's wickedest wrestler, Tommy the Spider-Baby generation ago wrestling strove to present clean-cut good guys as evidenced by the, the term babyface and the, the bad guys were meant to be completely despicable and there wasn't a lot of dimension or nuance in that now the audience understanding how this stuff works will cheer my entrance but then they will boo me once the match is start and once i start cheating and i start walking them through this process that they recognize but i'm, I'm leading them on this dance 
And I have noticed when you're a funny heel, when you're someone who interacts with the audience, some of the audience is so smart or thinks they're so smart. And that smart is actually a fairly technical term too about understanding the, the inner workings of wrestling. The smart fans will look and say, there is a bad guy who knows how to be a bad guy. And they will cheer that effort in this sort of meta way. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many layers to it. That's amazing. What's it like um, when you're trying to get the booze and you get them? What is that feeling like? Oh boy. When you grew up, as I did as a kid, um, to the extent that I've grown up, you know, you're used to being the good boy. You know, the principal likes me and the teachers all like me and I'm shining apples and all that. And then you're doing just, just the opposite. There is this monster that lives inside of me that just goes, yeah, feed me Seymour. Oh yeah. That was fantastic. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome thinking in terms of chess like okay that's exactly what i wanted them to do now they're doing it now i'm going to grab the good guy and he's going to do something even better bang bang and then they respond all to, to that because the, the contrast is such that if you think of booze as getting them low and then the cheer is getting them high that contrast is part of the fun and it's it's part of the journey if that's not too artsy a term it's just like a craftsman if I can say that without sounding too pretentious, applying his trade and saying, okay, that's, that's what I wanted onto the next thing. When you cheat, how do you cheat? I guess. Oh, what a great question. This is something distinctive that I think I bring to my matches that I don't see any other wrestlers doing. And it's, I'm ripping it off from eighties wrestlers. So as a specific example, I might use like a figure four leg lock, which is a painful submission hold where I'm grinding uh, the guy's shin into his other leg in the form of a four, hence the name. I have my head near the ring ropes. And so I'm twerking away and the, uh, you know, the referee's asking, do you want to quit? Do you want to quit? And the baby face is bravely saying no. And I torque away and he screams and the, uh, do you want to quit? And he looks to the audience. No, don't quit. No, I won't quit. You know, that kind of thing. And then I'll reach behind referees back and I will grab the ring ropes and use that for extra leverage. And he lets out a scream. He looks, he looks like Robert Shaw being devoured by the, the robot shark in Jaws, you know, ah! and the audience goes insane because they're ratting me out, right? Turn around, ref, turn around, turn around. It's like a horror movie. And then I let go of the ropes and the referee looks and I always tell them, don't let me make you look like a total idiot, just <laughs> one quarter of an idiot. And so did, were you grabbing the ropes? No, no, no. Was he grabbing the ropes? He asks the fans. Yes, yes, yes. You better ask if he wants to submit. Oh yeah, that's right. And then we just, we just keep doing that. I do let the referee catch me eventually, usually on the third, my third cheat, because what I've noticed the first time I started doing that, is if you get away with it completely, the fans get mad at the referee. They stop getting mad at you. And um, that's not good for anyone. You know, that doesn't, that just screws up the match completely. You want them mad at the bad guy, not at the referee. Before you were Spider Baby, when you were just Terrence and you were thinking about getting into wrestling as a gay man, did you have any trepidations, any expectations? What did you think about that? It's so strange how it all happened. Although, Everything that happens in pro wrestling, 
is strange. So you don't really need to put that any, any qualifiers or asterisks. Yes, is the, the answer. So, so this semi-mentor of mine said, please don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't come out. Someone's going to drop you on your head and break your neck. And I said, well, <laughs> that's occurred to me. Yes. One of uh, the wrestlers who worked there at the time was a retired mixed martial artist. And I did take the precaution. I said, I'm worried about someone getting cute with me in the ring. Will you teach me some real things to do in case I need to protect myself? When you say cute, you mean like actually fight you in the ring? Actually fight me, right. Yes. Yeah. So so wow. I had my first match and my opponent I trusted completely. That was no big deal. I went back to the locker room afterwards and everyone in that locker room stood up on their feet and, and gave me a big, big round of applause. And I just went, oh, geez, thanks, guys. And that was them telling me, we're, we're cool with it. We're glad you're doing it. We support you. And no one's ever mentioned it in all the years since. As far as presenting that to an audience, that was a little tricky, too. And because I was the whole point of my presentation at that time was I'm not going to do feather boas. I'm not going to be fabulous. I'm not going to be gorgeous. Uh, I'm not going to be exotic. I'm just going to come out here in this and I'm ready to fight sort of presentation. And yes, the performer is, is gay and the character is gay, but that has nothing to do with the, the gimmick, as we say. And that was important to me when I did a lot of press. And even when I would do interviews in character, you know, I would say it's okay to boo me for what I do, but it's not okay to boo me for who I am. I was approached by a promoter he said, oh, come, come out to the audience after my match. Uh, there's someone I want you to meet. And I don't particularly like mingling with the fans during the matches because I want to accentuate the willing suspension of disbelief. Just, just like I wouldn't want the actor who played Julius Caesar after getting assassinated, walking up and down the aisle saying, stick around for the fifth act, folks. I'm going to be a ghost. You're going to love it. It's great. <laughs> so I go out there. Okay. There was this old fan well into his 70s, who I, I, I recognized instantly was gay. You know, he said, oh, I, I fell in love with wrestling because of Gorgeous George. And he mentions all these, these gay gimmick characters. And these are all straight men portraying the, the nastiest, ugliest stereotypes. But that's all this old gay wrestling fan had to relate to, where he would look at up the TV screen and say, that's me. But what a horrible image. And so he's just, he's kind of, rattling this off and i feel like i'm just reading someone else's rolodex i'm like where is this going i don't understand and then he just seemed to sense that and he stopped and he looked at me and he tears welled up in his eyes and he said i've been waiting for you my entire life and i went oh wow well thanks for waiting i just gave him a hug said thanks for your support and, and left and thanked the promoter for forcing me out there but um those are the moments that matter, you know, when, when you have an impact beyond just wrestling, beyond just entertaining, there's value in that. I don't denigrate it. I'm proud of being able to do that. But when you realize that there's meaning and resonance beyond wrestling that people take into their lives, beyond just catharsis of screaming at bad guys and cheering for good guys for two hours, that's 
the only time wrestling really means <laughs> anything. That's such a beautiful thing. Maybe to wrap up here, Spider Baby, I'm curious about where this is going. You said something to me at the beginning of our conversation about there being a civil war between the new-ish wrestlers and the old guard. And what you said totally resonated with me because the wrestlers that I adored, you know, like uh, Kane, Undertaker, Mankind, Austin, The Rock, they were so outlandish. They had these bizarre characters, uh, you know, back from the dead kind of things. Um, and now I turn it on and, and they tend to be, you know, they're, they're, they're more real people, but they, they don't have the same sort of zany characters that they used to. But you're kind of a throwback to that to a certain extent, I guess. But tell me more about where, where has that gone? Um, and where is wrestling going? Spider Baby, this particular iteration of the character, I've changed him over the course of 20 years. You, of course, have to, or you get stale. Currently, it's this version who was kind of funny before, but had basically a nervous breakdown. And now he's so determined to prove, I don't care about the gay stuff anymore. I just want you to see that I can wrestle. You know, I can wrestle. Watch me wrestle, that kind of thing. Because of the makeup and this very kind of gothic uh, presentation, he thinks of himself as Undertaker 2.0, but he's a foot shorter, 100 pounds lighter, has very little of the talent that the Undertaker does. And so he just goes into this meat grinder time and time again and gets knocked on his on his back. And he's like, how did that happen? Because I'm, I'm Undertaker 2.0. Well, I'll try again. <laughs> the 50th time will work for sure. That's what the fans, when they, when they see one of my matches, I say in all humility, that's what they're responding to is, is a character. I don't know that it's necessarily, I mean, in the case of like Austin and, and Vince McMahon, you know, brilliantly, they act out that, that fantasy of beating the mm -hmm. hell out of your rotten boss. You know, that we've, anyone above the age of 30 has had that experience. Probably a lot of people under the age of 30. Now, the young talent, it seems to me, feels like I can do backflips. Therefore, I should do backflips. And I should do them as often as possible. And the problem with that is the fat guy in the front row is drinking beer and eating pretzels isn't going, yeah, that reminds me of the backflips I do. You know, I, it really resonates with me. That speaks to me as, as Joe Lunchpail. Well, that's a stereotype about wrestling fans too. There, there, there's a lot more diversity, but um, it's diminishing returns. You do that first backflip and everyone gasps, and then you do the second backflip, the same match, and half the people gasp. And then the third, everyone's like, geez, you know what? They're checking their phones. It's the young guys trying to impress the audience, but not really establishing a relationship with them, it seems to me. And the one thing I've seen locally, and I take no pleasure in reporting this, is a lot of these young guys will blow out their knees or one guy got so many concussions because he would land the wrong way after doing 50 of those moves and he had to retire because his brain will explode. And I, I hope that the next generation of wrestlers will study that and say, you know, maybe there's more longevity in establishing a relationship with an audience, with the audience, rather than 
doing my cool flippy stuff. Wrestling won't survive if that becomes the paradigm. That was Terrence Greep, a.k.a. The Spider Baby. Heather Levi is an anthropologist at Temple University. She did her dissertation studying Lucha Libre in Mexico. She even trained as one. I wanted to understand how it fit with Mexican culture in general. So the starting point for me was Super Barrio. Super Barrio was this figure who would dress in a Lucha Libre costume with like the mask and the tights and a cape. But he was the spokes, let's say the spokes wrestler for the Asamblea de Barrios, which was this grassroots housing rights association that emerged after the earthquake in 1985. So he was taken kind of seriously. I mean, kind of seriously, kind of not. It was complicated. He was partly a satirical figure, but he also would really make these serious kinds of speeches or pronouncements about the position of the Asamblea de Barrios or what he thought about the Zapatistas. And so he was this figure that was uh, simultaneously very ludic and very serious. And so my entry point was, what is it about Lucha Libre in Mexico that makes Super Barrio make sense? Uh, and, mm. you know, when I started doing the warm-up to the project, I started by saying, like, why is it that somebody who's a wrestler gets taken seriously as a political voice in Mexico and not in the United States? And then Jesse Ventura was elected governor of Minnesota, so I had to tweak that a little bit. <laughs> that kind of contradiction between someone who's a bit of a joke but also taken seriously, these run throughout your book, the contradictions between modernity and tradition and machismo and, and feminism and homophobia and queer culture. Tell me a little bit more about those contradictions and how they work out. Basically, you're asking me... <laughs> How is, what is Mexico, right? And of course, I'm by no means qualified to say what is Mexico. The first time I went down was in 1994. So one of the first matches was in Puebla, where it was these two exoticos. And I'm, I'm pretty sure one of them was Cassandro, who since then has become very famous. But I mean, it was really interesting because they go into the ring, they're in drag, they take, you know, some of their props off, they're in what looks like, you know, women's bathing suits, and they do this whole kind of drag wrestling thing. And in the end, they won, they pinned their opponents. And, you know, the thing about wrestling pins is that it's a contact sport, you know? <laughs> so I, it was really interesting. And the more I came to understand about the way that sexuality is organized in Mexico, the more interesting it became. You have the central stereotype of like, what's wrong with queer men is that they can't defend themselves. They won't defend their boundaries. And so because of that, their word is no good. And here you have this performance in which they're not only defending their boundaries, they're like kind of unmanning the other wrestlers. And so that was really fun. Who did the crowd cheer for? You know, honestly, I can't say I really remember. I went to a match in Ciudad Neza, which is this very rough area to the east of Mexico City. And there, I mean, the Rudos were in Mexico, the heels, 
had a pretty serious cheering section, and they were definitely cheering for the Exoticos. There's also, I interviewed this one wrestler in Pachuca, which is a small city that's like north of Mexico City, who would fight as bello exotico, beautiful exotic. And he turned out to at least identify himself to me as straight, but he wanted to embody a character that women could identify with. He was sort of a a small, wiry guy. He would have this costume that would completely cover his body. So you really get a sense he could really embody this androgynous character with like a full mask. And he had a wrestling style like nothing else I had seen before or since. I mean, it was just really fun to watch. He kind of had elements of mime. I don't know. He just like had this really interesting movement and the crowd loved him. And when I met him for the interview, he was just this guy who worked in a shoe factory, just like ordinary Pachuca guy. He didn't like outside of the ring. He didn't present as androgynous or dress and drag. Not at all. So he was interesting because he was completely transformed in the the ring. Mm. His gender agenda was so idiosyncratic, like it didn't fit with anything else anybody else was doing. What do you think is at stake in a wrestling match that's staged in which traditional gender and sexuality roles are kind of uh, being played with? What does it mean if the queer, the exotico character wins? I think it probably means different things to different people in the audience. For some people, it's probably about the world turned upside down, for better or worse. I remember talking to this one young man who was an anthropologist or an anthropology student at like the AAA, right around when I was doing my field work, who told me that when he was growing up, in like a very conservative small town in Mexico. And he was like really aware that he was queer and he was going to have to leave. And he just had, you know, nothing approaching a role model. And then the Lucha Libre came to town. It included Exoticos. And that for him was a really liberatory moment. So, you know, the thing about the Exoticos is that they're playing this stereotyped role and they're playing it as rudos usually. But even so... In that context, for him, it was a point of identification and pride and feeling of like, you know, things might be okay. When I interviewed my flowers, he said at that time he wasn't doing the exotico thing, but he was gay. The promotion wanted him and a few others to do like um, Los Batos Locos. So they're more like gang members rather than the exotico thing. And I asked him if he missed it, and he was like, Yeah, I love doing it because, let's see, how did he put it? Like, I mean, basically all of the chaos that that I set off. Like, it would be reasonable to just translate it as, like, all the heat I draw. So, (laughs) but at the same time, I mean, he and the other exoticos in interviews would really present themselves as role models. Mm. We're showing the youth that it can be done, so. I think this would surprise a lot of people that don't know much about wrestling because I think sort of the cultural sense that we have of wrestling, certainly in Canada and the United States, is like, you know, bra and panties matches and like really kind of 
awful uh, stereotypes of gender and sexuality. But it seems like there's there's some kind of radical potential here or transgressive potential here. Does that translate at all in the U.S. and Canadian context, or is this an idiosyncrasy of Mexico? I think that it can. So there's a couple of things. One is, since the 90s, there's been this rise of independent promotions in the U.S., and they vary a lot. And so some of them are doing like really different kinds of storylines, different kinds of characters, and are really not depending on that kind of confrontation of stereotypes that we associate mostly with the WWE. Some of the more like progressive promotions, it seems to me that they're borrowing a lot of their technique from Lucha Libre, that they're very Lucha Libre inflected. So I think that's interesting. I don't know what to make of that exactly. I also don't really know what to make of their audience. Is this a gentrification of wrestling? But I know that in the UK, there are promotions that are very intentionally and very self-consciously feminist and anti-racist. You know, you have the whole phenomenon in Bolivia with the Cholita wrestling that Nell Haynes has done field work on. Uh, So these are like women who are dressing as this role of traditional indigenous urban market women in Bolivia, and they're kind of representing the people in a way that has a different set of social connotations. And they've been successful in Bolivia, but also successful as a big tourist draw. I talked to this one woman, Patricia Banegas, who is doing a kind of follow-up to my research, like what's going on in Lucha Libre now that it's a little more than 20 years later. And she said that in a lot of ways, the performance hasn't changed, but the audience has, that most people who go to the arenas now are middle class, whereas it used to be absolutely kind of a working class public. So what does that mean in terms of the social meaning of Lucha Libre now? I'm not really sure. That's fascinating. And I had never thought of that. And the phrase that you use, gentrification of wrestling, how would the storylines change if wrestling were gentrified? Well, the storylines might not change. The thing that I think is most interesting about professional wrestling is the way the meaning is co-created between the writers, the wrestlers, and the public. You need the crowd. You need the public. It seems to me that the way that meaning works in professional wrestling, you need to have that crowd. If the populist message, right, historically has been as working people, we're getting screwed, but the audience is not working people, then what's going on with that message? That was Heather Levi, assistant professor of anthropology at Temple University. She's author of The World of Lucha Libre, Secrets, Revelations, and Mexican Identity. Most recently, she co-edited Professional Wrestling, Politics, and Populism. I found Professor Levi through the Professional Wrestling Studies Association. As far as I can tell, they are the only academic association that focuses on pro wrestling. They even have a journal and a conference that coincides with WrestleMania. They call it the Wrestleposium. But I wish they called it Wrestlebrania, because they have a lot of intelligent speakers. 
Thanks so much to Carrie Lynn Reinhardt from the PWSA. She helped me understand the relationship between academia and wrestling. And if you care about the study of wrestling, I highly recommend you check out the PWSA and Professor Reinhardt's work in particular. You can follow her at Media Oracle, and I will link the PWSA on the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jay Coburn, and our assistant producer is Polly Legier. Our chase producer is Mark Apollonio, and our research coordinator is David Mosscrop. Our theme song and outro, as always, by Mike Barber, and our graphic designer is Dakota Coop. I'm your host, Gordon Caddick. Big, big thanks to my buddy Jay Shaw. He's a wrestling super fan, and he helped me out a little bit on this episode. Jay totally convinced me that The Rock could do it. That the Rock could be the people's president. Jay also wrote an article about Rob Ford and pro wrestling, and I will link it in our show notes. Thanks also again to Carolyn Reinhardt. Send us your feedback by emailing the show. The address is dartsandletterspod at gmail.com, or you can tweet us directly at dartsandletters. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by academic research grants that support mobilizing research and democratizing the idea of the public intellectual. We are also supported by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Patrons get content a day early and this week, bonus content. Thanks so much for listening.